Melissa. Hello, Sarah. And how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. You beat me to the punch on that one. I know. I always think I'm going to be the first I person know, to say I know, I know. Well, I thought, let's, let's mix it up a little bit. We're always so joyously silly at the beginning, <laughs> so I thought I would just get right down to business. How come we're always doing well? That's oh, well, okay. So do you want the actual facts? I'm extremely tired. I'm still jet lagged from last weekend. Um, my eyes feel scratchy, but my inner spirit swells forth with hope for yeah. the new day. My left ankle feels a little jammed. <laughs> I feel slightly dehydrated. <laughs> but yeah, I feel calm, comfortable, very hopeful as well. <laughs> See, can you imagine if every time someone said, how are you doing? This is how we answered. It would be a really wonderfully, interestingly complex universe. Come, and real. Come step in my shoes for a while. Okay. That is the world I live in, actually. Okay. I'm very happy about it. I know. That's lovely. It's really going on. Excellent. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. That's the only way. That's the only way to go on, in my personal opinion. If you don't really know what's going on, then you're just being, I often think of floodwaters. Uh, not, not not to make fun of a natural disaster that's happening all too often, but yeah, just being carried up in some big stream and just to have to go with it. I don't mm. think that that's not on for me. We are talking about something which is relevant to what we would like to talk <laughs> okay, about. Okay, splendid. We are sort of talking <coughs> about uh, projection of yes. oneself. Yes. What you show. Yes. How you show it, who you show it to, why you show them that. <laughs> well, oh, my husband would have such a good laugh at this. Well, um, I have, funnily enough, strong opinions about this one uh, that date back, I think, uh, before I even went to public school. And I think it was because I'm very lucky that I was raised with a mom and a dad who were really at home in their skin and um, very natural per se. Uh, at the time, there was no, well, there was no money for it anyways, but there were no uh, formal haircuts. My mom cut my dad's hair. Uh, she cut her own hair. She never wore makeup. So my first example of of looking at, you know, how we use our moms as sort of models was just you know, that you had a fresh face that you washed in the morning and you felt sparkling and clean. To this day, I'm actually very religious about washing my face. I love uh, I love washing my face at night before bed and I love washing it first thing in the morning. Just makes me feel ready for both of those rather monumental events. And um, I think that there's something about uh, the... I think this is going to sound corny the cleanliness, the clarity, the purity of the fact that when I looked through my little girl eyes up at my mom, I saw this beautiful, sparkling woman who laughed easily, had this ready, oh, <coughs> excuse me, it sounds like I'm getting emotional, but it's just dry throat. <laughs> but it would make me emotional too, because she's splendid. Mm. But laughed easily, had a ready open smile, had sparkling uh, clear eyes, and there was no, I never had a feeling that she needed to prepare herself to go out into the world. She was herself. It was a wonderful first example. And as a little girl, uh, I look back at, at childhood pictures of, of myself and 
I mean, children are children and children are wonderful little human beings that all are different shapes and sizes and particular looks and such. But I feel as though even, well, it, I, I'm sure in every era, there are always uh, looks or a perceived sense of the norm of how someone should look, even on poor little innocent children. And I guess I didn't fit that, funnily enough. Um, being raised in the sort of mid-70s, I, by the time I went to school, you know, everyone was in polyester and it would be plaid and pants and little, little wide lapeled shirts and those kind of lurid colors. And uh, hair seemed to be parted down the middle and didn't all necessarily need to be straight, but very long and little bobbles worn on the end if it was in a ponytail or pigtails or everybody was very boxed into being little girls and little boys, I think. And along I came with uh, my very large cranium and <laughs> my my hair that I would have loved to have as long as these girls down to my bum was my preferred length, but that just would not grow at any more than glacial pace. And so it was quite white blonde and wispy. And I liked to wear dresses uh, that my mom would either reconfigure if they were hand-me-downs from someone or if we'd found them at a second-hand store, reconfigure them to make them special with little embroidery and special things on them. Or sometimes it was just straight and clear purchase from a second-hand store the way it was and I liked it the way it was. But because I also was very active and I, my favorite thing to do was hang upside down on the monkey bars, I wore them with pants. So my pants would be, it seems I favored, I feel like they were woolen or wooly or stretchiers. Nonetheless, I didn't fit in. I think that's clear. And on top of it all, I didn't have the accoutrement that came along with being a regular 1970s kid, which was to have a wagon wheel in your lunch, to have white bread with peanut butter and jelly and or a craft uh, cheese slice. And then some sort of, I think it was always a can. No, it would have been a bottle of, of, a, of a soft drink slash beverage. No, I had homemade bread sandwiches that my mom would cut in the morning and she's not a morning person. So sometimes they would be going from a quarter inch thick to an inch thick by the end with um, fresh butter from the auction that was unsalted. So it came out of a log. So there'd be big chunks of unsoft butter with uh, unmixed, you know, pure peanut butter. So it's really glumpy and such. And uh, she would have some carrots from the garden. And we seem to always have an orange. I feel like that was in there and water. So I early on was teased and bullied actually by a grade seven girl for some strange reason. She took a disliking. I was, you know, grade one. Yeah, I was a six year old. She was 12 and I had to take the school bus in as well. And I remember quite distinctly being on the bus and my driver was name was he Mr. Davis? He was Mr. Davis when I very first started school. And we got on the bus and I sat probably, I, I was one of the first stops off and the last stop on. I, I was relatively close to the school at being three, was it three miles? Yeah, so five kilometers from the school. And when I sat down, I was probably about the third seat in, I seem to remember. Oh, that's right. I'm forgetting a very important thing. For grade one, I was given a brand new gift from my parents, which was a big deal because we did not have 
money for brand new clothing. And it really, you know, it's not necessary. There's so much clothing that can be refurbished, regenerated, re reused out there. But this was a treasure to me. It was a gold raincoat and it was gold and it had snaps, snap buttons down the front. There's quite a charming picture of me somewhere where I just look like I feel like a million bucks in this gold raincoat and it nipped in at the waist and I was wearing it. And I, I was sitting probably third seat back on the, you know, the aisle because then it's easier to get off. And I don't think I was the youngest on the bus, but I don't recollect. And the girl got on and she was part of a fairly large farm family that lived quite a bit further. And I think she had about an eight kilometer ride. And she, I don't remember her name, but I do remember she was redheaded. And I remember always loving red hair when I was a little girl, but that was the first redhead I didn't like. And I remember her looking at me and going, oh, Scara, nice coat. And I... I was so taken aback at the vitriol and the this directed malevolence from this person that I had no idea who she was. And I I was a little girl and she was to me a big kid. And I saw, you know, I did the looking around. And plus my name's not Scara. <laughs> right? So, so I Jokes on yeah, you. Yeah, so I looked around mm -hmm. and she did the, you know, the push of the shoulder. Yeah, no, she'd full on bullied. Wow. And the bus driver had to say that's enough and get to the back of the bus. And that was my very first experience uh, of ever having that sort of uh, negativity directed at me in that fashion. And it was all superficial because she did not know me and I did not know her. And I think that set the wheels in motion for me not wanting to be part of that outlook. I like anyone on the planet, of course, didn't want people calling me names and didn't want to feel ugly and didn't want to feel wrong. But I had this amazing mom who had this way of constantly the questions that I would have. I remember being in grade seven and, and saying to mom, you know, mom, I'm not beautiful. In grade seven, you're just sort of coming into puberty a bit. And and I had a crush on a boy that I wanted him to think I was beautiful. And unfortunately, I was that type of female counterpart in the planet that tended to draw a lot of male counterparts to want to be friends with them and tell them about things that they didn't want to hear, such as the beautiful girls that was not me. And I remember... I remember thinking, well, what is so beautiful about this person that you're talking about? And when I would look at those young women, I had this distinct moment where I thought, well, I could really dislike them because they have something I don't have. And and they, they all seem to get sort of lumped together as this sort of perfect combination of these things. And at the time, it was really, I have to say, sort of typically blonde hair, blue eyes, um, medium to slender stature a feminine in appearance, dress, etc. Not, I mean, we're grade seven, so it wasn't makeup or anything at the time, but we were coming out of the era of Farrah Fawcett who had the most spectacularly feathered hair. So the more attention you paid to your hair, the better. And I put mine back with barrettes and got it out of my face so I could do stuff. <laughs> so I really went through a lot of questions. And I have to say that my mom gave me some pretty wonderful answers. And I would get so specific as in grade eight, and nine, I had a list in my diary. I'm not ashamed to say that had 
the word beautiful, and then I would list who I thought was beautiful next to it. Then it had the word pretty, and I'd list who I thought was pretty next to it. Then it would have the word uh, attractive. Yeah, that word, which to this day is a joke between my husband and I, because I always think of it attractive as describing furniture, <laughs> an inanimate object, or a horse. So if someone says, well, you're a very attractive woman, Sarah, I just start laughing. I just, I just think of a, a, an end table, a dining room set, or a large horse. <laughs> So anyways, and th this list also contained the word striking because my mom taught me that word and striking. I looked up in the dictionary because any word that I didn't know, I would look up and research and I was okay being called striking. I was fine with that. And it was funny. I think that that was a, you know, 13, 14 year old real, I embraced that identity and that identity meant that I could be really happy with being so different because there was no denying that I was. I, I've got large bones. I was, funnily enough, quite a large-headed, large-featured person for that time and era. Not so much anymore when it seems like everyone is the average height is 5'10 to 6 feet. But I look back now, if you see pictures of me and, you know, those classroom school photos, yeah, I stand out. It's That, that child looks a little bit different. And I... I don't want to equate myself by any means with any struggles that minorities of different skin colors go through, but I seem to feel like some of the stories are similar. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you just get to this place where you accept, yes, I'm different. I don't look like everyone else. And I embrace it because this is actually who I am. And I think that along those lines, it, okay, let me also say, I still did experiment with makeup. In my grade eight year, I wore green mascara, uh, green eyeliner. Uh, let's see, what else? I, I never toyed with green. Oh, I did toy with green eyeshadow. No blue eyeshadow, luckily. I never tried blush because I'm so rosy cheeked that it would just look like I had some scarlet fever or something. I never tried covering up my skin because it just always felt wrong. Putting stuff on my skin that was... I didn't even like wearing lotion. So, and I didn't like using soap. I didn't use soap to wash my face. I still don't use soap. I just use water. So I think that that was something I avoided, but I definitely toyed with the eye thing. It was, everyone had these blue eyes and they'd have the purple eyeshadow and the blue eyeliner and the blue mascara. So I thought when the green stuff came out, I want to give this a try. <laughs> I did try purple eyeshadow, which I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast because someone had once said it brings out the green in your eyes. Mm. And I look at those photos and I love that kid. You know, I look at that awkward phase of trying it all out and the mascara, the layers of mascara, they, they would be so thick. If I blinked the wrong way, they'd get stuck together. <laughs> You'd be sitting there peeling your eyes apart. But yes, it was part of that. Okay, well, let's see how this feels. It lasted not even the full grade eight year. And it just felt like A, too much effort. Be uncomfortable. I was aware of it on all the time. And I still didn't fit in. So I guess it was that attempt to see, well, will this make me feel like I fit in? And will I like that? And, and neither of those things happen. So I just got used to the fact that my eyelashes are pale. If I don't wear mascara, they're pretty much invisible. Uh, my eyes are not traditionally green. They're mossy green. So people that want to be rude say, oh, they kind of look like a swamp. Um, and my coloring was at the time really hard to pin down because it wasn't pure red hair. It wasn't blonde hair. It wasn't brown hair. And 
And then, oh, and then I discovered something even further more interesting. I used to brush the dickens out of it because I was trying to make it, I was very tidy. I wanted it to be tidy. So I was constantly brushing it. So it was quite poofy and, and slightly wavy, but not uniformly wavy. So it was a bit frustrating. And it wasn't until I was actually out of high school that I had a friend who had naturally curly hair. She said, your hair is naturally curly. I said, no, it's not. She said, yes, it is. Let me try something. And so she brought out all this mousse and product and stuff. And it's funny, that first time she showed me in the mirror what I look like without brushing my hair, I was beyond shocked. I, I remember actually, it looked like I had someone had permed my hair or was a wig or something. And I thought all those years there I was, I even carried a, a hairbrush in my purse, you know, come on, you've got to lay smooth. At least you can be tidy. You know, if it can't fit in, it can be tidy. And I, so I do... I want to say that I didn't walk through life with this preternatural sense of self-confidence that right away thought everything's perfect and I don't need to worry about a thing and I'm not concerned about how I compare to others or I'm not concerned with how I look. But underneath all of those superficial concerns that definitely came up for me was this sense that the most important thing that I've got is me. And the me is going to change in looks. I, I, I was already interested in anatomy, so I already knew I was going to change when I went through puberty. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to reconfigure itself, but I knew there were going to be changes and to accept that that was something coming down the, the pipe at some point. And I kind of also, I remember researching that oftentimes puberty brings on a change of hair color and hair textures. So sometimes curly hair gets straighter, uh, straighter hair gets curlier. Sometimes things will, oftentimes hair darkens. It usually doesn't go lighter. And so I just remember kind of just going with it, I guess. And mostly concerning myself, I wanted to be seen as what I what I considered valuable, which was intelligent. And I wanted to be seen as strong. I wanted to be seen as unwavering in my independence. I wanted to be seen as un unequivocally unabashed and unashamed about being different. In fact, my husband will argue that I actually made that a mission, sometimes in spite of myself, to be so different that I wasn't even letting things that were naturally similar be there. And, and I, won't, I won't go into a big denial of that because I'm sure that came up. Uh, at the, in high school, though, not as much because, it, you know, moving in from the mid-70s to the 80s, the 80s were such a weird time of conformity and such a weird time of capitalism in the world, or North America at least, and such a weird time of, of role play. You know, the, the dynasty women with the fake power shoulders and the super poofed hair and the hairspray and the makeup and the lit and then the and then it seems as though I, f I I could be wrong I'd have to research this to be totally factual but I'd be curious to find out how much reconstructive surgery became popular and did it start then because I do feel like it did I feel like that was a time in which uh, lips started to be enhanced breasts started to be enhanced waistlines started to be uh de-enhanced, <laughs> diminished. Uh, you know, I, I feel like people became quite concerned with that outward appearance. Maybe it was because I was already, you know, I don't, I don't know what I can attribute it to. I really don't. And that's why there's, I, I can't say, oh yes, you all need to think like me because this will help you with these struggles. Because I, I just know that I was already in ballet. I was already madly in love with ballet. I looked 
quite honestly like a freak in the ballet world. I didn't fit in remotely. I was about 30 pounds too heavy. All of it was muscle. It sat in all the wrong places. My ankles were huge. My feet were big. My hands were big. My head was big. And those were structural differences. And then we get into the personality and the, you know, what was guiding me. And it, it, it made for, I guess, an identity that was based on not identifying with any particular group. And I think that when I got into my, my young woman, I mean, I, I got into a relationship at 16 years old that lasted for 10 and a half years. So I can't say that I experienced maybe what a lot of young people experience, which are the dating years or the, you know, being new, newly single and just out of high school and going to bars and all that. That wasn't my scene just because of the situation I was in. But I can genuinely say that in the relationship I was in, for, this is actually even a, sort of a funny background story. I, um, he was a lifeguard and he was a lifeguard in a town that was a, a bit of a distance away from my, my hometown. And apparently he had a notoriety that I didn't even know about. My group of friends apparently went to this pool on a regular basis. When I say my group of friends, there were probably about six of us that were were really good friends and then we would splinter off within that that six some because we certainly all all didn't have a great deal in common uh and i think that a lot of people on the outside like to put us together as that's that group but i think i just identified with them because we tended to enjoy outdoor activities we tended to enjoy uh laughter and we tended to enjoy taking ourselves pretty seriously actually in whatever vein we we like to we we didn't smoke we didn't drink we didn't all have you know well actually that's not true the, a couple of them did have some serious boyfriends actually most of them rode horses uh, none of them were dancers and uh, two of them were pretty serious uh, three of them were very serious athletes so uh, and two other ones of them identified quite heavily on the academic side so I would say that we were all just ourselves and we just got along for whatever reason and I remember going to this pool on the recommendation of one of my friends saying there's a lot of cute guys there so I went with a friend a different friend outside that particular circle who really wanted a boyfriend and I had just turned 16 I was a month into 16 we rode our bikes there it was an all-day all adventure and we got there and there were some very good looking young males there, but ironically, not particularly my quote unquote type, you know, the ones that we all have something that turns our heads and I didn't have my head turned. And what transpired out of that was um, someone asking for my phone number and me being kind of taken aback because they were clearly a little older. And it turns out later this someone was this someone that all these girls were talking about and I actually, at that time in my life, ended up having my name written up in a bathroom in a very negative connotation because apparently this someone who is an amazing human being and a beautiful person uh, was not, not a, I guess he was more popular and more desired than he thought he was. And my subsequent becoming his girlfriend was not thought of very kindly. So it's a, it's a funny story because it was literally one of those things I kind of fell into. It was just by happenstance. And I actually love the fact that he was he was three and a half years older. So he's 19 and a half. And I loved that because I did self-describe as quite mature. And I think I think others would have described me as that as well. So I was interested in being with someone who was, you know, embarking on a different time in 
their lives in which they were seeking post-secondary education and, and they had a job and they were looking to move out and travel and such. And long story short, that made me, I think, self-identify even further with how wonderful it was to be kind of oblivious to trying to be liked, to just be. Because I did not know that this was this popular guy. I did not try to get his attention. I didn't even really uh, look to him as though he would make me feel more uh, like a young woman of desirable content because he looked at me, but we ended up, that was who I was with for 10 and a half years. So uh, we definitely shared a very, very long, very deep, uh, very formative relationship that, you know, a lot of, I mean, I was 16, so I did a lot of growing up between that and 26 and a half. And then when I came out of that relationship, I have to say that I did go through a resurgence maybe that most young people might go through in their early 20s of where it was kind of, oh, I'm single and and I'm attracting attention. Well, what kind of attention do I want to attract? And then sort of trying to feel that out for myself and wanting to renew my wardrobe and renew the way I dress myself. And I think I did that for about two months, if I remember exactly. It seems like it was summer months because I remember going to Le Chateau actually and buying quite a few dresses and, and enjoying it, you know, enjoying the, the sort of I, I, experimentation, figuring it out and then realizing I hated that superficial scene where you were basically being chosen 100% on accounts of your looks and the person that came towards you was expecting you to choose them on account of their looks and that the conversation was very difficult to have because it was usually in a noisy environment. And by the time you had the conversation, you were wondering how to extricate yourself from the situation as quickly and swiftly and hopefully without hurting anyone as you could, because if you could only have heard that person speak earlier, you would have realized, no, thank you. And I feel as though that made me further aware that I really wanted to meet human beings and if they happen to be packaged in such a way that my chemistry was also equally attracted, fantastic. And ironically, when I met my now husband, who I have been with for 20 years, and we've been married for coming up on 12 of those, I he was packaged in a in a very at that time I had been around a lot of males I'd had, had a lot of my male close friends and I had dated a couple of males that were right outside my package zone shall we call it or the the type the type the type that you're attracted to I had picked them on the basis of of human interest and um commonality and and activities and such and this young man when I met him was not in a in a typical package that I would normally be attracted to, but had the most beatific smile on the planet. It was like a beacon. It literally is like a, a lighthouse. And he was so funnily and unexpectedly and surprisingly engaging in his patter and his, I guess, his comfort in being a complete kerfuffle that I found myself undeniably attracted to him and willing to forego the fact that there were a lot of trappings that I wasn't very keen on or remotely interested in involving myself with 
but really wanting to delve further and see, well, who are you, you know, and what is your humanness all about? And he loves to tell the story that I described him once we had gotten together, uh, probably about a year later, that he was like an onion in which I constantly peeled off layers. And onions, of course, are notorious for making you cry. And they're not particularly loved by humankind in general. But at the, at the heart of them is there's actually a flower of the onion. And he always says, have you gotten to the flower yet? <laughs> And I, I smile and I just say, for me, peeling off layers is, and, and it, even if there's tears, it's it's not a bad thing. It's, it's about self-discovery and it's about discovery as a couple. And I think that, I think the recognition that I ended up being chemically attracted to someone who really did make a lot of people ask me, what do you see in this person? How did you meet? And I'm sure he had the same thing on the other side because we were so outside each other's quote unquote type or each other's typical possible milieu. And the the answer I have is I fell in love with the person underneath all of that. And I fell in love with the energy and I fell in love with the fire. I fell in love with the fight, the the willingness to keep pushing for something more than what meets the eye and the good heart and the big heart and the generosity of spirit. And I think that I I don't, I mean, I 100% believe that we are chemically attracted to human beings on the planet. And I 100% believe that there are soulmates, but I don't believe that there's one. And I think that soulmates come in different shapes and sizes. And I think soulmates are not necessarily your mate as in a romantic or sexual mate for life. I think sometimes you can have a soulmate as a friend, as a parental figure, as a mentor figure, as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a partner. And sometimes you have it in your child, which is also another interesting uh, situation on so many levels. And sometimes you have it in your parent. And I, I feel that I feel that if you can find a place that you can go out into the world comfortable being you, then you are less likely to obfuscate or cover that up with the trappings of what you think you're supposed to look like. Because looking like something is not necessarily you. And I feel like I, when, I, when I'm in situations that are more public, the more public domain I definitely have a sense that people have expectations of how I'm going to look. And sometimes they're voiced. And I must admit, there's a part of me that catalogs them away. And there's a part of me that's got a shyness about them. Uh, I've heard feedback from when I'm adjudicating, which is quite a public domain and at a, at a distance, that I'm, I'm so um, beautifully dressed and pretty which makes me smile because that was one of those words that I couldn't identify with when I was 13 and 14. And uh, when I'm in a guest teaching environment so that thereby my hair would be up and back a bit more, that I'm so friendly and so kind and so pretty. I think pretty is a lot associated with kindness, which is interesting. Mm. Um, when I'm teaching, I think that my students are so used to seeing me come with my hair in a certain way and wearing a certain outfit, so to speak, of teaching, and wearing mascara, which is my beauty product, so to speak, that when I, 
or if I wouldn't be wearing that. And there have been occasions, one that comes to mind when my shoulder injury was so bad, I couldn't actually do my hair. So I got my husband to put it in a ponytail and it wasn't his field of expertise. So I think it was a bit off center and there's no way I was going to ask him to put on mascara. So didn't even bother. And I think this particular group of students had never seen me without mascara. I think everyone on the planet has at this point, but they hadn't. And I remember one of the first questions was, are you okay? And it was interesting because I realized at that moment that that I could take that so wrong. I could take that to heart and feel so bad And I could also just answer it. And I just said, no, actually, I'm not. I've got a really severe shoulder, uh, chronic shoulder recurrence injury going on right now. And I can't lift my arms up above my shoulder and thereby I couldn't do my hair. And that's why I'm not wearing mascara. That's not the part that makes me not okay. It's the shoulder injury. So I'm just not as put together as I normally am in that particular way. But I'm clean. (laughs) I've had a shower. (laughs) My face is washed. My teeth are brushed. And it was kind of, it ended up being one of those little inadvertent side life lessons because I wanted to make it clear to the students that, no, I'm not okay, but it's about my injury. And my appearance, I realize, is unusual for you and maybe a little startling. And I apologize for throwing you off, but it's because of this. And I feel that when I'm, when I'm around women now, in my age group, let's say anywhere from 35 to 55, I have to say I'm often without mascara, which again is my beauty product. And I know I look tired a lot of the time. And I know that they are sometimes looking really closely at me because it is different. I don't often see a lot of women out there that are wearing no makeup whatsoever. Even if they don't wear eye makeup, they wear something on their skin. Or if they don't wear um, full skin, they'll wear lipstick or a little bit of eyes or a lot of everything. And I feel like, or, or the latest trend, of course, is all that, the false stuff, the false eyelashes that are permanently on or, you know, those kind of things. And I feel like I don't want to malign anyone for relying on that to feel good or experimenting with that to feel good or wearing that to feel good. I just want to say that from my own perspective, I want to feel good waking up. I want to feel good, for instance, if I roll over and look at my husband, I want him to see me. And me happens to have been born with pale eyelashes and freckly skin and hair that, when not slightly tamed, looks a bit like a happy bush blowing in the breeze. (laughs) So I, I... I'm not making that right or any more right than anyone else. But I think that when I am talking to my my female students, I want them to know that that old saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, there's always someone out there that looks at you and sees you as beautiful, no matter how you see yourself. And there's always someone out there that looks at you and sees you as not beautiful no matter how you see yourself or how much trouble you go to to make yourself beautiful and there's always someone out there that's going to focus on something that you may have used to make yourself look beautiful and they're looking at it as a distraction and something that's detracting Mm -hmm. from you so if we're constantly trying to put ourselves in a superficial appearance that we think is pleasing others I think we're going to be exhausted first of all and we're going to disappoint because it's just impossible and I think that we have to be okay with how we are if we're healthy and 
and well slept is nice. I mean, I have to admit when I look in the mirror and I see an exhausted Sarah, I, I feel kind of, I don't want to say disappointed. I feel a bit bummed out because I, I don't like that dark circle sort of, everything just gets a little bit more drawn looking, a little less vibrant. But I don't, I don't look in the mirror and feel shy or ashamed if I see myself without mascara or, or my hair looking, I, you know, there have been three incidents in the last, I would say, two months in which I've worn my hair in ways that people hadn't seen it before, you being one of them, that remark has, I've never seen you wear your hair like that. And it's funny, I think to myself, yeah, I guess I haven't done that before. Or around you, is my thought. Because I, I think I've everything that I tend to do, I've tried at one point somewhere, oftentimes camping. You know, camping's the great experiment of all. And I usually do it for comfort. And that, that hairdo that you saw me in, the ponytail high on the head, folded under, it is fantastically comfortable on one hand, but I cannot wear it for very long because it hurt. Doesn't it hurt? Fantastic. Holy smokes. And that's my thought. I've been teaching that to my daughter and I want her to be so clear on that. Beauty should not hurt. Anything that you do to feel quote unquote beautiful or comfortable or go out in the world shouldn't be uncomfortable and shouldn't hurt. And she's quite fantastic because she has decided that her mama is always fancy, that I'm always trying to be fancy and she's not fancy at all. So she's always going for comfort. And she said, mama, I'm just actually just much more sporty than you. And I said, what does that mean? She says, well, I like to wear runners because I like to be able to run at any moment. And I like to have something underneath my shirts because I like to go upside down. And I don't want my shirt to go up over my head because that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I like my hair off my face. And low ponytails that I do are better than the ones you do because you make them too high. And I like them to sit really low. Oh, she's specific. Weird. I wonder where she gets that from. So <laughs> I smile at all of this because I think she's learning to find her own way of feeling comfortable. And that's what my mom did for me. And I try to do that for others, but it really is, it's a journey. And everyone's journey is a little bit different. And sometimes I've had students that have been, I will describe them as perfectly quaffed and made up their entire youth with me. And they go out into the world and I might meet them again at 19 or 20 or 21. And I'll meet someone who's had their nose pierced and wears their hair, maybe messy, down, cut short, dyed, in a ponytail, no makeup, and they are comfortable. And I smile and I think, there, you found your way. And, and when, you were, when you were wearing and dressing the way you were before, you were finding your way. So none of it's wrong. None of it's invalid. None of it is judged. It's just some people's um, path to, dis to self-discovery about, about the, their outward appearance is a little longer some of it is more varied. Some people have quite the adventure. I mean, some people go through a variety of quote-unquote looks before they find their look. I think I really early on decided that I just wanted to be, I'll put this one in air quotes again, natural. So I have this thing about, I, I've been professionally made up at some times in my life for, one was for a photo shoot that I was doing for a photographer and he wanted me to be his model. And I was so uncomfortable with the makeup that was put on me that the photos are hideous, full on hideous. We ended up redoing the photo shoot with me exactly like I am right now, mascara, hair sort of messily up and dancing, moving. Because standing there and posing with a bunch of makeup on, I just couldn't do. I didn't feel comfortable. And then another time that stands out in my mind, I when I was 
uh, doing a lot of varied professional independent gigs when I was in my really early 20s. I was part of a hair show and the makeup artist did, um, I was wearing this, I, I chose not to have my hair done. I wore a wig. So I had this long, dark brown, super sort of like a wild rock star perm that went to my waist. So it was kind of fun because I had that super long hair. And they did my face like a part geisha girl in the mouth. So removed most of my lips and made a real cupid doll mouth. And skin was all whited out. I had no freckles and no coloring whatsoever. But then did my eyes like sunsets. So it was, it was interesting. And it was an artistic vision. And I must admit, I looked at it and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm kind of like a canvas for the night. The only thing that I can relate about that experience that was very interesting to me was the person that was working on me was uh, starting my, I think they had already, they had already blanked out my, my entire face and they had spent an extra amount of time on my eyebrows. And as this person was doing my eyebrows, I, they said, you, uh, you could actually be quite, and here comes the word again, attractive if you did something about your eyebrows. And I laughed and I said, um, I'm sorry, what, what exactly are you driving at? And they said, well, that's just too much hair. I mean, so bushy. They're so distracting. And I said, well, thank you for your perspective. I said, I'm, I'm okay with my eyebrows. <laughs> and I'm okay not being attractive like a kitchen table. Uh, and yeah, and I, you know, over the years, there have been comments like that. Oh, if only you did this, if only you did that. Have you ever tried? And when someone says that to you, I guess those are those moments, those those dividing and deciding factors where you think to yourself, yeah, I am comfortable. This is me. This is how I come. And uh, I don't want you to inadvertently or purposely try to make me feel bad about it. And so I try to relate that both to my daughter and to my friends and to my students, both male and female. And and I then I let go and just realize that everyone's going to have a trajectory of some sort of self-discovery of that. A wise man once said, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. <laughs> Thank you, RuPaul. Did he say that? That's funny. It's fantastic. Well, on that note. I'm going to go wash my face. I was just going to say, we're going to go wash our faces and get all freshened up. Yes, that sounds lovely. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. Bye.